Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, this is the part of the service where we give attention to God's Word and the Bible. And uh, if you're here this morning and you need a Bible, raise your hands. We're happy to supply one. Some young men who are passing out Bibles there, keep them high and they'll bring them to you. Now, if you don't own a Bible, guess what you do now? That's our gift to you. We want you to take that, make it your own, hide it in your heart, read it each day, and uh, pray, through, pray through what you read, uh, and let the, Lord, let the Lord speak to you in that way. Thanks, Chen. Chen. Chen Zora. It's all right. I'm going to give this one back to you. There we go. Y'all thank the little fellows for helping us this morning, serving the Lord in that way. Amen. Before we get into God's Word, a couple things real quick by way of additional announcements. Uh, first off, thanks for all those who came out on a um, bone-cold Monday uh, to march in the MLK Day Parade and to uh, sing God's praises. We, we would have been a raggedy lot if it hadn't been for LaRonda. LaRonda was our, our cheerleader and uh, was our, 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 what do you call them, majorettes in the band? Is that what it was? It was she was our majorette, so she was calling. I, you know, I think she might have... She might have been in a gang once the way she was. <laughs> that was a great time. And for those who worked at the table at the Rise Center, thanks for that. Um, what, a, what a joy it is to try and inject some gospel uh, and Christian witness uh, in that time. Also, praise God for last Friday's Friday Night Fellowship. Uh, I don't see our sister Christella here this morning, but uh, thank you for arranging that. And praise God for everybody who came out. You know, I was thinking to myself, I ought to go show these rascals how to bowl. Then I saw that Sasha McGee is a ringer, apparently. Uh, yeah, she whooped a lot of heads in there, so I'm going to let her hold the crown. <laughs> this Thursday, following Bible study, is an open budget meeting, a members meeting. Uh, so if you have questions about the budget, uh, about five or ten minutes after Bible study over at, at the House D.C., 1610 16th Street, um, come, ask those questions. The pastors will be there. Um, that's, the, that's the whole sort of agenda for that meeting is your questions. If you don't have any questions, you don't have to come. It's not a, it's not a mandatory meeting, but for anyone who would like to interact more and understand more about the budget we presented in our last members meeting, this is a time to come ask questions. And then, Lord willing, uh, the following Thursday, the 7th, uh, we'll have another very short meeting to do one thing, and it is to vote on the budget. And so do be aware uh, of those meetings and uh, mark your calendar accordingly. Next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, our first church plant, Mercy of Christ, is celebrating their one-year anniversary. And so we'll give God praise for that. And uh, so we do want to remember them, encourage them, pray for them. Uh, if you would, you know, want leave to go over and worship with them, uh, let's do that. Let's encourage them as they continue to plow the soil with the gospel there in Northeast. Now, you've seen the announcement on the ARC Women's Retreat. This is where you go, woohoo, right? Amen. First women's retreat of this church. I want to make a special appeal uh, to all the sisters of the church to, to come to this retreat. Uh, if you're a member here, certainly, if you're a visitor with us regularly, uh, we, we want to encourage you to come out, withdraw from the regular pace of things, and, and press into two things. Press into Christ and his word, and press into relationships with each other. You've seen the announcement uh, a little bit earlier in May for the Just Gospel Conference. Be glad for everybody to come to that conference too. Uh, but if you're choosing between one or the other, let me encourage you to make that the retreat. You can make it just gospel if you want to, but let me encourage you to make that the retreat, because what we do in the retreat 
shapes our relationships as a family in a way that's different than a once-every-other-year conference does. Uh, I don't know. Do we have a table afterwards? So we'll have a table out back after the service for registration. So if you want more information or want to register, uh, there'll be some folks out back. So let me just encourage the ladies of the church to do that. Finally, last thing, uh, after the service, about 15 minutes after the service, Lord willing, uh, we're going to have a, a little vision meeting for those who are volunteering to help organize the job fair in April. Um, and so that's going to be part of our anniversary celebration. Uh, we want to sort of kick that off and get some work started on that. So please, if you're interested, if you already volunteer for that, stick around. We'll have a short meeting. Uh, we want to sort of uh, recast some things and, and get off to a start with that meeting. We'll be in the band room uh, after the service. So those are all our other announcements. <laughs> Let me offer a word of prayer as we go to God's word. Speak to us, O oh Lord, we pray. Make your word alive to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, last week we began a new series in spiritual warfare. We're taking up that topic for two reasons, really. One, or three, I guess. One, most important, it's in the Bible. Secondly, there's a lot of confusion about it. So we want to come back to the Bible in order to clarify the Bible's teaching. And thirdly, because whether or not we feel it right now, or whether or not we've thought about it in some time, we are in fact at war. And that warfare shows up in our lives when we least expect it, and sometimes in most um, troubling and distressing ways. And we began last week by considering our three enemies in this warfare. They are the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we saw last week from Ephesians 2 and 1 John 2 that this warfare and these enemies, we can't be reconciled with them. There's, there's no peace. There's no truce. There's no neutral ground to which we can flee. We are in this war until Christ comes. Now, we are victors in this war. There's no doubt about that because of Christ's work on the cross, but, but we are in this war until our Savior comes. Last week I made the comment that the most pervasive part of our war is our contest with worldliness. That worldliness is the sort of most widespread kind of entanglement and trap and spiritual attack that the Christian faces. We don't have to worry much about meeting the devil personally. He's not everywhere all the time. He's not another God. He, you know, he's a fallen angel already defeated by Christ. But we do have to worry about our flesh and the world because that's everywhere we go. So the question becomes, most fundamentally, how do we practically defeat the world? How do we overcome the world? How do we live in victory against the world? And to think about that, we're going to 1 John, John's little letter there written to the churches. And the letter of John is like the gospel of John, written to answer the question, how do we know? How can we be sure? It's a letter all about assurance of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
But this morning specifically, John writes so that not only we might know that we have eternal life, but I want to suggest in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, that, that John writes so that we might know the answer to three related questions that have to do with this warfare. Question number one, how do we know we are born again? We're born of God. See that in verse 1. How do we know we're born again? Question two, how do we know we love God? and love the church. So how do we know that we love God and love the church? Then coming to our theme for this series, number three then, how do we know we will win the spiritual war? The first question is in verse one. The second question is answered in verses two and three. How do we know we'll win the spiritual war? The third question is answered in verses four and five. Look with me, First John chapter five, beginning in verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So that first question. How do we know that we are born again, or to use the language of verse 1, that we are born of God? Look at at verse 1 again. John writes there, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. Notice now, the first thing to get in our minds very clearly is this idea of being born of God. That's interesting language, isn't it? It's unique language. It's not language you find in Judaism. It's not language that you find in Islam. It's it's unique Christian language. This idea of being born of God is first introduced by Jesus in John chapter 3. You may remember there is a man named Nicodemus who comes to him. He's a Jewish leader. And Jesus is not loved by the Jewish leaders, so Nicodemus sneaks over to see him at night. He's on the sneak tip. And he got questions for Jesus. And And Jesus tells him this. He says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He says that in verse 3. And Nicodemus is shook. Nicodemus is like, how can an old man be born again? Is it possible to climb back into your mother's womb and and to be born again? And Jesus is like, no, son, I ain't talking about that. I'm not talking about physical things. I'm talking about spiritual things. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. And so he explains that the, this new birth is produced by the, the Holy Spirit of God and that the Spirit is like the wind. The wind blows where it wants to. You can't see it, but you feel its effect. So it is with the Spirit of God. You don't see the Holy Spirit, but he, he moves, he blows, and he blows with power. And the effect of the Spirit blowing on a person is this new birth. 
And so when we come to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, that's what John has in mind. He's speaking of this spiritual birth that the Spirit produces in those who believe. The Bible uses phrases like we are new creations. We, we are born again. An exquisite description of how radically changed we are from being sinners trapped in sin to being saints through the Spirit and the working of God. And Jesus' point in John is that dead things don't go to heaven. Only living creatures born by the Spirit. So if we need this new birth, the question then becomes, how do we know we have it? How can we be sure that we have been born of God? And you get two tests in verse 1, and the first test there is this. It's belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Look at the verse again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. That term Christ there is not a last name. It's a title. The Bible says Jesus Christ or Jesus is the Christ. It's referring to a title that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The promise of a Savior, the promise of a Messiah, literally a a chosen one or anointed one. God had promised to Israel centuries ago that he would send a king who would be his chosen one, who would deliver his people and rule over his people in an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And for centuries, Jewish people were looking for this Messiah, looking for this Savior, looking for this chosen one. And John says, the first evidence that you have been born of God is that you have come to believe that this Jesus of Nazareth is that very Christ, is that very Savior, is the chosen one of God, whose very name means, according to Matthew 121, that he will save his people from their sins. He is the Savior that delivers the world from sin. He is the King that rules in God's kingdom forever, world without end. John says, now, if you believe that, then you've been born again. Now, look at the text. It's important that we see how this is expressed, what verse 1 actually says. It does not say everyone who believes will be born again. In other words, the verse does not say that the new birth comes after faith. The verse says the opposite. It says that everyone who believes has already been born of God. In other words, first comes a new birth, then comes faith. I know many of you have heard it the other way around, but look at at what the text actually says. Conjugate them verbs. Has been born of God is the perfect past tense. It's a one-time action completed in the past. That action, which is the Spirit's new birth, comes before the believer's faith. Now, why does this matter? Remember our question, how do we know we have been born again? Our answer is this. We know we have been born again because we have faith. Faith is the evidence of the new birth. The only way you can have that faith is if you have been born of God. That's the argument of Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God in his rich love and mercy 
made us alive again together with Christ. And, and in verse 8, in that, in that new birth, he's given us gifts like repentance and faith. So if you have faith, that is the fruit of a new birth that is at the root. So that you are able then to assure yourself, if you have doubts and questions about whether or not you're saved, you are able to assure yourself by asking yourself, do I believe that Jesus is the Christ? And if the answer to that is yes, then you reason down to the fact that God has done something to you. He's made you alive when you were once dead. Your faith is the evidence of your new birth. But now there's a second evidence in verse 1. Not only that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, but notice now, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. The second evidence of having been born again is love for the church. Everyone, without exception, who truly loves God also loves everybody else who loves God. If you're reborn into God's family, then you have love for your siblings. It's, it's getting tough now, ain't it? <laughs> look, look back at 1 John 3, verses 14 and 15. John works this theme all the way through the letter. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That's the new birth. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Look down at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. One more, 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you love the brethren, that's proof that you've passed from spiritual death in sin to spiritual life in Christ. But if you don't love the brethren, then you don't love God, and you are still dead in your sin. Faith is an internal and subjective evidence of the new birth, but love now is an external and objective evidence of the new birth. Love, in other words, shows itself to others. Look at 1 John 3, verses 16 and 18, through 18. John writes there, by this we know love. Here's how we know what love is. That he laid down his life for us, that's Jesus, on the cross. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love's an action verb. It's an action item. It's an external and practical proof that we have born, been born again. And think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Before you were a Christian, you didn't love the church. You didn't wake up thinking, I want to be with God's people this morning. 
You didn't wake up thinking, I wonder how this brother or this sister, who really ain't like me at all except that we both love Jesus. You didn't wake up thinking, how are they doing? Let me pray for them. Compassion didn't go out. The church was a stranger to you. How remarkable it is. You look across this room of the 150 so people in this room from, from 10 or 12 different nationalities, from different ages and all that good stuff. How remarkable it is that we regard each other as brothers and sisters. It's evidence that we have come to know Christ and we have come to love his people. Now, there's only one criteria in this text for someone receiving our love. Only one. And that's that, that is that they love God too. Notice now, whoever, whoever, black, white, brown, yellow, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, persons with disabilities or without disabilities, saints struggling with same-sex attractions, saints struggling with heterosexual lusts, English as a first language, English as a second language, Redskins fans or Cowboys fans. Yeah, Cowboys fans too. It says, whoever, whoever loves the Father should be loved by Christians. And beloved, this is why we need to be careful with uncharitable opinions of God's people. It's fashionable to beat up on the church, and she has her blemishes. It's fashionable to put down Christians. We need to watch out for that and ask ourselves if, if that might not be evidence of a cool love toward God's people. Those born of God love the brethren. If you find love in your heart for the church, then you have reason to be sure that you have been born of God. Belief in Christ, love for the saints. That's how we may be sure that we have been born of God. But that brings us to the second question now. How do we know what love of God and love for the church look like? How do we know that we're actually doing that, that we actually have that? That's a, a logical question, and John seems to anticipate that. Somebody might say, I, I love the church, and somebody else might look at that person like, I ain't real sure. Does love for the church get decided by public opinion, by referendum? Or is there another way to be sure that we love the church and that we love God? Verse 2 gives us the answer. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. This at first looks like two more proofs, right? Love God and obey God's commandments. But actually, love for God is expressed by obeying God's commandments. Verse 3 there, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. See, we show our love of God by obeying the word of God. We see the same teaching. Look back in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. John writes there, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. I, I love it. John ain't got no problem telling people they liars, is he? He's like, man, you lying. He's a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Or as Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, 15, very simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for God looks like obedience to God. 
We cannot claim to love God if we live disobedient lives to God. Love and, disobe- love and obedience are so closely connected that you can't have one without the other. Let me put it this way in the title of a popular Christian book. Obedience is God's love language. You want to speak love to God in a way he interprets as love? Obey him. It's great to have strong emotional responses in public praise. I'm for that. Amos, y'all need to get a little looser up here. Let it go. But if you praise him emotionally while refusing to obey him practically, God has an evaluation of that. He says, these people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So if you're going to get loud in praising God, amen, get loud in living for God too. Obey God that he might know that our love for him is genuine. Which brings us to how we know we love the church then. This this same love for God that shows itself in obedience to God, notice, is also the way verse 2 teaches that we love the church. We might expect that when John starts to talk about here's how you know you love the children of God, we might expect him to give us like a laundry list or something. Some things to do, some things to not do, some particular actions. Maybe he would cite the one another's in the Bible. But, but he didn't get into a list of do's and don'ts. It's striking. Instead, the Bible says we know we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. If we love God by obeying his word, then we will find ourselves loving the children of God as well. See, even our love for others is meant to be God-centered. God is to be at the middle of all of our action and our living as Christian people so that even his word shapes what it means and defines what it means for me to love you and you to love me, for us to love one another as brothers and sisters. It is God and his word, not man and his opinions, that define what love is. You realize that you and I don't have the freedom to decide how we want to love God's people? That's defined by the Bible and obedience to his commands. We're going to be in trouble if we start to pick and choose how we're going to love God's people. Well, I'll spend 10 minutes with him after service, but I ain't going to practice hospitality. I don't want nobody in my house. You know what I mean? Or, you know, I'll, I'll give a little more to benevolence. I, I like doing that, but I ain't going to pick nobody up and take them to the grocery store when it's, you know, I ain't got no time for all that. You see, we slip into, this is what I think love looks like. And we just need to be reminded that our definitions of love are always going to be smaller than God's. We love within ourselves. He calls us to love beyond ourselves. So if you want to know what love for the church looks like, look in the book. Obey God. Keep his commandments. And we'll find ourselves loving each other more and more as we do that. And and notice something else here. When when our hearts are right toward God and we do what God says, we'll, again, love the church properly. So if you show me someone struggling to love the church, I'll show you someone ultimately struggling to love either God or his word. Because at the root is always this question. Will I trust God and do what he says? 
Well, I love God and obey Him. Our love problems with the church are really love problems with God and His Word. The difficulties we find in other people are really difficulties we have in ourselves with obeying God. And notice one last thing on this question. If we love God, we not only obey Him, we obey Him happily. Notice there in verse 3, His commandments are not burdensome to us. See, beloved, if, if this love is in us, and we trust that it is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we hear God call us to obey Him, we don't shove our hands in our pockets, drop our head, moping, kicking rocks. I'm going to do it. I don't really want to do it. Anybody with kids and nieces and nephews, you've seen that posture. Go do this. Mumbling. What you say? Nothing. And we, we never stop being God's children. <laughs> we never stop acting like we're in middle childhood or teenage years. But we're called to recognize that God's word is good. It's not lumber on our backs. It's not burdensome. It's not meant to weigh us down. It's, it's meant to free us. And so the attitude we ought to have to God's word is there in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or, or we ought to be like Peter, as we said a moment ago, in John 6, 68. He says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else shall I go? But can't, the commandments of God are our delight and our life. Obeying them is the way we say, God, we love you. So heart check right now, heart check, question. What is your life saying to God about your love for him? What is your life saying to God about your love for him? Another question, do you and I rejoice in the commands of God. I mean, get glad that God commands us to do various things because we know that therefore our blessing and not our burden. Is that how we come to the book? Is that how we come to the Bible? I'm about to hear from God. He's going to tell me what to do. And that's going to be life and joy and strength and health. That's going to be wisdom and understanding and discernment. That's going to be power. I mean, do we come to the book like that? Let me open the book. God is speaking there. Let me open the book so I can hear my Savior's voice. Let me get into this book. God, tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. Tell me. And whatever you say do, I'll do gladly because it's not a burden. It's a joy. So how do we come or do we come dragging? I'm just going to dip into this real quick, but not long enough to hear. I'm just going to, you know, get me a little taste not enough to fill me. I'm going to get a little Bible knowledge, but not enough to change me. I don't come to the book because I got to check that off, but not because I'm offering my soul up to the Savior who purchased it with his blood. How you come to the book? How you dig into this? How you meet with God? Are you coming glad? The commandments aren't burdensome. Are you coming? Ah, it's a duty. Which one do you think God rewards? 
When's the last time you and I specifically obeyed something we found in God's Word? When's the last time we read the book and God said, go love your neighbor? And we went and knocked on the door next door. It's the last time we went in the book and we, we got a command from God or, or, or we got a, a, an application legitimate to our lives and, and we knew it was from the Lord because we couldn't shake it. He was, like, just kept tapping us and we couldn't shake it. And we knew it was from Christ. It was right in the book. And we said, yes, Lord. Your commandments aren't burdensome. I'll gladly do what you say do, Lord. And to say they're not burdensome isn't to say they're not hard. God will call you to do some hard stuff. And even hard stuff is not a burden. It's just the pain you feel when he smashes a, a, a shackle off your leg. How we come to the book, saints? And here's the good news, beloved. Every time, every time you've obeyed something God says in his word, including the times you didn't feel like it, didn't want to, and you were struggling, you have put the flesh to death and you have said to God, I love you. Every obedience is a declaration of love to God. How do we know we've been born again? Well, we believe that Jesus is the Christ and we love all the saints. And how do we know we love all the saints? Well, we love God and keep his commandments. This brings us to our third and final question. How do we know we're going to win this spiritual warfare? How do we know we are victorious? Verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is such good news. This is such good news. Consider, first of all, when we overcome. Look at verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. To overcome means to, to conquer or to win. That's why the next sentence says victory there in verse 4. Verse 4 applies this now to all true Christians. Notice it says everyone who has been born of God. Not a few who have been born of God, not some who've been born of God, not a, not a lot, but everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. God does not leave any man behind. No Christian is ever left out of God's victory over his enemies. It is not in doubt. It was never in doubt. The precise moment that the person believed, at that moment they became overcomers. Notice there, the text again, everyone who has been. Past perfect tense again. It's a simple action completed at one point in time in the past. It, it does not and cannot and need not be repeated. It is finished. Christ died, defeated the world, the flesh, and the devil, robbed the grave, was raised on the third day. The moment you believed in him, you died with him and were raised with him, and you had victory over all of your enemies through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. Now notice now, that person who has been born of God, past perfect tense, now overcomes the world. Now that tense is present continuous. 
In other words, that past tense action continues to have effectiveness right now and in every right now. It continues to work on our behalf. That breath you just drew a moment ago, if you're a Christian, you drew that breath as someone overcoming the world. The next breath that you draw, you will draw that breath as someone overcoming the world. What Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago on the cross became effective for you the moment you believe, and there is no expiration date on your victory through faith in Christ. You know, every moment you live, if you're a Christian, as one who is in the process and in the act of overcoming your enemy, the world. The Christian wins the war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. God ain't taking no losses. That's why 1 John 4.4 says this. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now notice how we overcome. Notice where our victory comes from. It's through our faith, John says there. The victory that has overcome, past tense, The world is our faith. Now here, our faith does not refer to how much faith we have as individuals. It doesn't refer to the quality of our faith, whether it's weak or strong. It doesn't refer to the the purity of our faith. Our faith here refers to Christianity itself. It refers to the system of belief, the the truth about Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. Everyone born of God has come into this faith, into this religious belief, and now has victory through that very faith. Faith, being in Christ, being in the faith, it's like a baby's umbilical cord. Connects the baby to the mother. And the baby receives nutrients and nourishment and life from the mother. As long as the baby has the umbilical cord, the, baby, the baby's good. Our faith connects us in the same way to the victory that we have in Christ. As long as we are in the faith, trusting Christ, we are being supplied and sustained by Christ. His righteousness is ours. His his perfection is ours. His victory is ours. Everything that he is, he is for us, and we receive it by being in the faith. There are only two ways for that victory to be interrupted in our lives. That's if someone cuts the umbilical cord and severs us from Christ. If one becomes apostate and abandons the faith, then they prove they were, according to 1 John 2, 19, never truly in the faith and never had the victory. But the other way to have victory interrupted is to have the umbilical cord of faith wrapped around the baby's neck. That happens spiritually when we get things twisted. When we begin to make faith a work, we begin to think that it is by our works that we are righteous with God. That is to distort the faith and that is to to turn the faith into a, a choking hazard spiritually. 
So that even though you're a Christian, you began to live like you were a legalist. You began to live like you're an Old Testament Jewish person. You began to beat yourself up with your imperfections and your, and your disobediences. You know you're called to obedience and your conscience, too sensitive maybe or, or too dull. It, 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 it warps your, your trust in Christ. And so you're like the Galatians in Galatians 5. Paul has to write to them and says, you started off running well. Who, who did hinder you? Who bewitched you? Who seduced you? Who drew you away from the simple faith that you were meant to have in Christ and convinced you that now you're running the race in your own strength? The umbilical cord had been twisted around their necks and they were choking in legalism and self-righteousness. But as long as we remain in our faith and we keep it from getting twisted, that faith becomes the means by which we defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil. But there's an exclusivity to this. Notice verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Verse 5 explains what it means, what's meant by the phrase, our faith. That's those who believe and continue to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. When verse 5 says, now, accept the one, it means only the ones who have faith in Jesus Christ overcome the world. Without faith, the Bible says, it is impossible to please God. Without faith in Jesus, beloved, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, you, you are losing the war. And you will lose the war if you, if you die apart from Christ, not believing in him. The only way to win the war against those enemies who would destroy your soul is continuous belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as your personal Savior. He is the one who died to take away the sins of the world. He is the one who lived a life of perfect righteousness to satisfy the, the just demands of God. He is the one who was raised from the grave three days later so that we would have victory over death and the grave and God's judgment. But no one without this faith has this victory. You can choose to walk another path other than Jesus, but you will lose your soul doing so and suffer eternally in God's judgment. But if you believe in Jesus, if you trust him and accept him as your Lord and Savior, if you repent of your sins, you are guaranteed victory. Not only in this life, but in the life to come as well. If you're here this morning, you've never done that. We, we beg of you, we plead you, trust in Christ. Consider who he is, the son of God, the anointed one to save you. Put your hope in him. Flee from everything else you're trusting to worship Jesus alone as your Savior. God promises you victory if you trust him. You want to know more about what that's like or how to do that? Talk with us after the service. We would be thrilled to help you understand the message of the gospel more clearly. And Christian, as we wrap up, this is what we want to hold on to. That belief in Jesus and love for God and love for the saints are all proofs that we've already won the war. 
your faith, your love for God and obedience, your love for all the saints in that same obedience, it's like the scoreboard in the, in the warfare. About 50 pounds ago, I used to hoop. I hide that fact now with my midsection. And I know it's hard to believe, but I talked a lot of trash when I played basketball. I know it's surprising. Like, not you, Pastor. But I did, I did. And the more competitive the team, the more trash I talk. I mean, what did you expect? I mean, some of my heroes are like Gary Payton and Michael Jordan, just legendary trash talkers, right? They talk trash and too gum, right? And so the more competitive the team was, the more, the more hyped I got, the more intense I got, the more trash I talked, the better I, fe- I played, I felt, right? Here's the interesting thing. If we was spanking a team by 30, I ain't really talk no trash. I mean, you know, y'all ain't really worth that kind of energy. Y'all, y'all getting beat by 30. It's the fourth quarter with a minute left. Here, go ahead. Shoot, shoot. Go ahead. <laughs> But it was funny, every once in a while, we'd be playing a team and we'd be beating the snot out of them. And, and they put in their subs and, and little fella come in and he'd be about five foot one, about 250 pounds. And, you know, he'd make a layup and then he'd be running down the floor talking trash, you know. I'd be like, bro, you down 30 in the fourth quarter with a minute left. What you talking trash about? Satan is down a million in the fourth quarter with just a few seconds left before Jesus comes back. And in this warfare, he's harassing you. And every once in a while, he might get lucky and score a bucket. And he just in your ear. He just jawing. He just jacking. We were taught to say one thing when we were beating the team and they were jacking. They were running off at the mile. We were taught to say one thing. Scoreboard. Scoreboard. Satan is harassing, he's after you, he's in your business, he's blaming you, he's accusing you. That's what he does, he's slandering you. Beloved, Jesus has died and rose again, and you believe in him, and you love God, and you love the saints. Scoreboard. Scoreboard. It's a wrap. Game over. We're just waiting for the final buzzer to sound. We're just waiting for the final buzzer to sound, for Christ to come gather his bride, close the stadium bring us to glory. It has never been in doubt that if you trusted Christ, that you would lose this warfare. Your victory over the world has never been in doubt. By your faith, you have already overcome the world. By your faith, you have been brought into the family of God. And all of that is evidence that God has already made you new. And in that new birth, and all that comes out of it, We have assurance of our victory. Put the world to death by believing even more in Christ, your Savior. Let's pray together.